0: Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for the words of a song that call us to the love that you have shown us. We marvel at this love. We, we cannot fully appreciate the gift that it is because you're so much higher than we are. And yet, Lord, we know our sin. We own sin the weight and offense of our sin against you and and we see such grace that would respond in the face of that. We thank you, Lord, for sending your son to take upon himself the wrath that we had stored up with our sins. We thank you that he joyfully submitted his will to you to take this mission on and lay down his life to pay the price for our freedom. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that we know through Christ now, who is alive, raised, conquered over all. We thank you for the freedom and the joy that we have and the gratitude in our hearts toward you, and we express that to you now. We pray, Father, as well for the work of uh, your word this morning in our lives. We know that you don't just save us and then leave us. You, You You coach us along. You shepherd us up. You sanctify us, Lord, through your word that is true. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be strong in our midst now, that there would be a clear movement of you in our hearts and our souls as your word lands, Lord. Change us, we pray. Change us. Equip us. Make us know this love and then call us to show this love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, kids, you can be dismissed to go to your class. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, make sure to wave your hands. These ushers can get you one. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 22 this morning. Actually, we're picking up in verse 16 because we covered verses 1 through 15 in one of the Ten Commandments sermons, and uh, that portion of Scripture is dealing with property and how to treat others' property and. Uh, Last week, we covered this first section of the civil or uh, case law, as it's understood, and uh, it was a people set apart part one. This is part two of that. We're going to continue to journey through all of these different laws that God has given. The men's study on Wednesday night is moving through a book titled The Hole in Our Holiness, and uh, the chapter that we covered together this past week related so perfectly with this this place that we're at in the book of Exodus, I, I felt like it would be helpful to give kind of a, a big picture understanding of this concept of, of God's law. And how does it relate? It's easy for us to think about the law as something just old and, and, and dated and archaic. And, and we, we have Christ, right? So what is the place of the law for the believer? How do we understand this? And how can we grow and appreciate and learn as we study these words today. Well, I want to give you some context here with a section in your, in your notes there as we begin, titled Law and Love. And I think it's helpful for us to see how these relate. Big picture category, number one, the law leads us to the gospel, okay? You think about the function of this law, uh, all of it. It reminds us or even reveals to us that we are law breakers, even though we would seek to keep the law, if we were to stumble at one point, James says, we are guilty of it all. And who can fully keep this law? With a sinful heart. We are sinners by by nature. We are born as rebels, and we are those who who hate law. We want to be a law to ourselves. We are autonomous. We, we want to rule. We don't want to submit and obey. And so God uses His law to reveal to us how actually sinful we are, how much we need the gospel. The law, as one of my professors described, is like a hammer that drives us down into the dust and proves to us that, in fact, all have sinned and fall short of His glory. Romans three, twenty-three. In Romans 3, verse 20, it says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So one of the functions of God's law, among others, would be to reveal to us our desperate need for a Savior because we are lawbreakers. We, we have transgressed the law of God. And we are hopeless unless God moves in grace and love and mercy to save us. We will perish rightly, justly, under His righteous wrath. So it drives us to the cross, and we find the, the, uh, the reality of the only perfect law keeper is Jesus, God's Son, the one who fully obeyed, who never broke the law, either in His heart or in His action, by what He did or by what what he didn't do. He fully fulfilled the law. He obeyed in all the places that we didn't. And then he laid his life down, now qualified to take upon himself our sins. He died as a substitute for us, the lawbreakers, and he paid the the debt that stood against us. If you ever doubt that God is a just judge, look at the cross. It is a reminder that sin will be punished either here on Jesus as God pours His wrath out on Him, or in the eternal fires of hell. And so we come to Jesus and we find hope and we we hear this offer from a risen Savior. Believe in Me. Trust in Me. Repent of your sins. Come. Allow Me to save you. Come be saved from your sins. But see, that's not the end of the law, though. Some people say, well, hey, I've on the other side of the cross, I'm free, right? The law is old, it's before Christ, it's BC. So we don't even need to worry about it. In, in fact, a lot of people don't spend much time in the Old Testament. And I think that's a huge mistake because here's the second piece of the puzzle. It's the gospel that leads us back to the law. Now we come back to the law in a very different way, don't we? We come not as those who need saving But as those who have been saved, we we come as those who are free. But we come back to the law, nevertheless. Listen to what Paul writes to the Galatians. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. And then he writes this, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see what he's doing? He's establishing for the believer in Christ, the person who is forgiven, set free, and set on the walk with the Lord, he's establishing the law of love. It's it's the law of love, which is showing up constantly in the Old Testament as God has given us his law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And we see these two aspects of the love that we're called to. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the function of the law then is to teach us, what does that look like? And the law then builds out, not for our salvation, but for the the joy of love and and follow through with our walk with the Lord. Day by day we grow in this law of love. So you could say it this way, the, the law of God is an expression of the love of God. The more I sat in this text, the more I was convinced of it. This is, in fact, what God has done for us. It is the law of God that shows the love of God. This is an assignment for us today. As we read these verses, what I want you to do is watch for this. Look at how even the Ten Commandments shows this again and again. It is love that moves God in this law-giving work to equip his people to love. And so we see even this response. Our delight in keeping God's law is an expression of our love for God. Some people say, listen, man, it's all about grace. I'm forgiven. It's not about performance anymore. It's not about rules and regulations. And I would say, well, true in one sense, right? True in the sense that I don't have to try to perform to be accepted by God. However, on this side of the cross, I am called to obey, right? He he's, he's set me free to what? To serve and obey. To, I've been set free to, uh, to be a slave of God as we landed last week. A happy, joyful, submitted, and obedient slave of the Lord, not slave of sin. Jesus said it this way. I don't think this could be said more explicitly to the believer This is what Jesus calls us to. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see the connection that he's making? It's love and law. They go hand in hand in the life of the believer. So for a person who says, listen, I love Jesus. I just don't care at all what the Bible says I'm supposed to do. Jesus might say to that person, you don't actually love me then. Because the person that loves me wants me to be their Lord. They want to live for me. They want to submit their will and do my will. They want to obey. And so this is so important because salvation happens in a moment and sets off this this work of sanctification for us. And it's that work that we live in the Christian life, day after day. So it's important to see this. It is not the law that saves us. The law drives us to the gospel where we are saved by faith, all of grace, right? And then set on the path of obedience to the law. Now, when thinking about the law, we have to think in the different categories as we've been discussing. There's the moral law, which we've studied a lot with the Ten Commandments. Uh, But here we have case law or civil law, and it's given to a nation, to the Israelites. And so in that sense, uh, we are not under this the civil law. We are Americans. We, we are under the, the law of our nation, and so we operate differently. But I don't think that we should just write off these verses. There's a lot to be learned about God and about the law of love as we study through these verses. So this is my assignment for us all together. Look for God's love in his law. It gives you a whole uh, window into these commandments that we can appreciate and gain from as we study. So with that in view, let's dive into uh, what I titled uh, protections and consequences as we dig into these these verses. Exodus chapter 22, verse 16. I'm just going to go little by little through here and look at these different categories, protections and consequences. Verse 16 if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Okay, so we begin with a category of people here, specifically young women who are betrothed or even maybe not betrothed, but there are relations of sexual intimacy that are reserved for marriage, okay? And this takes place. Now, I know in our day, this never happens, right? Because marriage is where physical intimacy begins, correct? No, this kind of lives for us, doesn't it? How uncommon it is in our day for sex to be reserved for those beautiful castle walls of the vow. Of marriage. So in protecting these young ladies, God establishes a law. Okay? This is given to protect, and it should be in the mind of every young man as he thinks through these things. If in fact I violate the law of God and I don't live in the vow, but I do engage sexually with this young woman, there are consequences that are very real. I am required then to pay the bride price for her, and if uh, the situation is correct, marry her. Now, this doesn't require marriage, and sometimes I don't think it's wise. I think there's some really terrible situations that can come out of that. However, there is a consequence in this setting for that kind of behavior. The consequence is this, the bride price. Now, Before we skip over this, the bride price is the equivalent of one year of work in this day. This is is a significant amount of money, and you are to pay this to this woman, even if her dad refuses to give her to you. So what does it do? Well, it engages your thought process a little bit on the front end, and you start saying, okay, am I willing to run the risk, or should I just follow God's way, which is the better way? God gives protection for virgins. Number two, verse 18, you shall not per- permit a sorceress to live. God takes very seriously those who would practice black magic or satanic rituals or lead people astray into dark forces and power. One thing just to be reminded of, this stuff is real. Okay? Satan is real. Now, his power is only allowed by the sovereign hand of God. He is a dog on the leash in the hand of God. He is not a rival. He is not uh, the yin in God's yang. God allows Satan room to run in this only by sovereign decree. And at the point that he says enough, Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire. But we are not to play games with satanic power or these dark forces. So those who practice sorcery are given the death penalty. That also kind of has a, you know, a thought process. If I'm going to do this, I might die. Maybe I shouldn't, right? You see it function. Sober reminders. Verse 19, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. This shows up a number of different times, both in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. In fact, in one of the Leviticus passages, it says... Not only the person, but the animal is also to be put to death. This is bestiality. It is gross, it is abhorrent, and it is unacceptable to God. And it carries, in this context, the death penalty. As hard as it is to conceive that this could happen, it does. And I would add, with the kind of spiral that we see our country on right now, the kind of moral decay that is just eating our nation from the inside out, we're not probably that far away from this becoming more common. Even defended by the same kind of laws that are defending all kinds of other deviant sexual behavior. This is wrong. God says it's wrong. And the penalty is enacted. Now, verse 20, whoever strikes... Uh, Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. What is this? Well, this is idolatry. So those who practice idolatry are to be put to death. Now, if Israel would have stuck to this, oh, what a world of hurt they would have avoided. But they didn't. And idolatry ran rampant through their ranks. God hates idolatry. Replacement gods. And go to number five. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Okay, now, before we just write this off as something old, let's just enter into the moment that we're in currently, the climate, okay? The topic is what? Immigration, isn't it? That's a big topic right now, it's pretty fiery. Here's what we should gain from this. There's a principle to be learned in this. One is to to remember, you were sojourners once in the land of Egypt. So deal kindly. Don't wrong or oppress a sojourner. We need to remember, friends, we are a nation of immigrants. That's our legacy. One of the reasons America is strong is because of the immigration that formed our nation. I think as believers we should be engaging some different angles on this topic. One would be to go back to where we were recently. One drop of racism in the topic or debate of immigration is toxic. These people are different. We don't want them around us. We want people who are like us. Racism has no place in our immigration thinking. Something else should be noted here. The sojourner was one who had permission to be in the land. Okay, This, this wasn't just anybody could wander in and glean and work. And this they, they had permission. They had done what was necessary to be in the land and be recognized in the land. So I think we should be wise in how we think about immigration. To me, illegal immigration is, is what it says. It's illegal. We shouldn't just turn a blind eye to laws that are written to protect. And if we're going to bring immigrants into our nation, we should do so wisely, not foolishly, but we should do so joyfully. Welcome in the nations. And think of this. Lastly, if we need one more point to just put on our radar as we think about the topic, we are a people uniquely called by God to go to the ends of the earth, to go to every nation people, tribe, and tongue, right? We are to reach the nations. How incredible is it when God brings the nations to us? It might be, in fact, that we could do this wisely and find opportunity to reach people that God brought to us. So, there we go. That, that, you see what happens? That law lives. What's the root of that? Love. 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 Love the sojourner in your land. Don't just tolerate him or abide him. Love him and welcome them and do it wisely. Verse 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I shall surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. The, God said that, okay? He said that. So widows, specifically, in this time, those who were impoverished more likely because their husbands who work to provide and protect are gone. And they are relegated now to the gleaning work or to maybe some some lower rank work, but they're many times in, in poverty. In fact, even in the early church, we see that the early church had a tremendous ministry to the widows in that area during the challenge of poverty that was in Jerusalem. God has a special place in his heart for those in that situation. And then you go to the fatherless, and you think about this. Similarly, poverty, most likely, uh, struggling to survive in an agrarian society, having to work, having to do things that uh, uh, other kids maybe don't because their dad is there and he's working and providing. Who's going to protect these children? Who's watching out for them? The answer is the father. The father is. is. He is their father and he is their guardian. He is their protector. And if their cry reaches his ears, death is on the line. Takes it very seriously. Next month, we're going to be bringing you up to speed uh, with another ministry that we've supported for many years, New Hope Uganda. This is their mission, to bring the fatherhood of God to the fatherless. And they've been in uh, Uganda there for, is it 35 years? or I mean, coming up on 40 years of ministry, caring for orphans, the fatherless was able to go with Joel a number of years ago, and then we took a team a number of years ago. This coming next year, my family, we're going to go together, and we're going to go to New Hope, and we're going to serve and, and just be with them and encourage them. Bringing the fatherhood of God to the fatherless. Here's one thought that struck me. Jesus was fatherless, and his mother a widow. He knows. He knows what this is like. Jesus' father died at a relatively young age. I mean, we don't know exactly when he died, but he was not on the scene. And and in that role, then Jesus took on the primary protecting and providing role such that when he was on the cross, he looked to the apostle John and he said, John, behold your mother, right? He handed off that work, care for my mom, as I have been doing over these years. So Jesus Christ has a special place in his heart for the orphan, the fatherless, for the widow. So should we. The poor. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like the money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak in a pledge, and uh, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? If he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Oh, beautiful. Love in law. You see what happened to me? I'm, I'm studying these laws, and I'm like, Lord, you're so good. You're so loving. You call us to this because that's who you are. Our job is to reflect who he is in these things. Does it mean that uh, we should never be actively in, involved in, uh, in charging of interest? No, that's not what it means. It's referring to predatory lending. It's looking at poor, those who are poor, and seeing a financial opportunity. So this would cover the gamut from everything from uh, gambling in casinos to the prosperity gospel. That would come and see poor with a a false gospel of get rich and use Jesus to that end. And, And by the way, make me rich when you buy all my books. That is a special offense in the mind of God. I think we should be those as reflectors of who God is who would see a need and move in love to meet a need, not to to try to exact financial gain. It's just the opposite. I still remember when uh, Jenny and I were just, uh, we weren't even married yet. We were engaged, right? When your grandpa gave us that loan, we needed a car and we had no money. We were poor Bible school students. And I went to Jenny's grandfather and I said, do you think just maybe there would be a way that we could borrow some money from you to get a car. He gave us that money interest-free with the agreement that we would work to pay it back in a certain amount of time. Well, we were delighted by that. And we did pay it back sooner than he asked. That's a great example of it. He could have come and said, hey, make a buck on this. I'll charge you guys some interest and pocket a little because that $5,000, well, that means more to me than you do. That's not what he did. We should be a people who meet that, see that opportunity to bless, not to exact money. It lands on love. It just shows this love. I am compassionate, God says. And so are you to be with those who you interact with. Now, the next section here, respecting and reflecting God. Let's continue on. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Just pause there for a second. That's uh, not always easy. Okay. Maybe the first part's don't revile God. The second part is don't curse a ruler of your people. That is comprehensive. That means of our people. That, that's any ruler. What does this mean? It means that God is sovereign. There is no ruler that is put in place except by the sovereign and ordaining hand of God. doesn't mean that he puts him in place uh, because he thinks he's the best at what he's going to do. There can be a million reasons that God puts a ruler in place. History would show many have ruled. Many have been horrible rulers. But of all of them, this would find a home. Do not curse the ruler of your people. Why? Because in cursing the ruler, you are indirectly cursing the God who is over him. The sovereign God who put him in place. Sometimes we should be convicted. I personally find myself watching the news and mumbling a little bit. I can't believe I just heard that on the news from a leader in my country. And yet, I am called, I, I can disagree, right? But I am to do so with respect because ultimately God is sovereign. Do not curse a ruler of your people. And so we're called to honor Verse 29, you shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses, the firstborn of your sons, you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat the flesh that is torn by the beast in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Generosity. Holiness, these things are to define God's people. Don't hold back from the first fruits, from the best of what I give you. God says, I give you that to bless you, but remember, I own all of it." the first fruits. uh, When we bring that sacrifice, that best sacrifice, that first gift, we are preaching a sermon to our hearts, reminding ourselves, in fact, this is not my own. This is all God's. I am a steward. And I am to give generously, to see it as a way to leverage His work, His purpose in my life. What do you have that you have not been given? That includes our family. That includes our uh, our, our property, our animals, even the roadkill. Look at this. Don't eat the flesh torn by the beast of the field, or hit buy a car as you're driving down the road. So, man, if you're wondering what to feed your dog, it's biblical. Roadkill. Right there. It's. A, I mean, it says, feed him roadkill. Right? Throw it to the dogs. What, it, what is he saying? He's saying, you are consecrated to me. The things that you eat matter. You are not to be a roadkill eating people. You are not to be a Oh, I just wandered across, found this festering animal on the side of the road. It's okay for me. No, you are holy, set apart. Maybe in the other nations that's normal, but you're my people. You are to be set apart. Throw it to the dog. Consecrated and holy. Let's go on. Uh, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the enemy so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of the one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him uh, with it and you shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. You shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. I just went through And as I studied these verses, I just saw these words jump. We are to be truthful. We are to show impartiality. We are to be a people of grace, a people who uphold justice, not who promote bribes or the perversion of justice. We are to show mercy. We are to be righteous, and we are to be those who have compassion. This is part of what it looks like to be the people of God is that we, in our interactions with one another, in our interactions with those around us, would shine like stars who stand out in the dark. When everyone else at work laughs at that joke, you don't, because you love. When everyone else comes together and they rally around to take someone down, to shred their character, You say, no, hold on a second. Let's get to the heart of the matter. What's true? Because truth matters. What's right here? Because righteousness matters. We are increasingly seeing a culture that is so quick to presume guilt. We should be a people who are careful to criminalize or vilify. Sometimes when you're on the outside, you don't know all the facts. God is just and he doesn't vote by popularity or cultural sway he cares about truth what is and what isn't truth and justice are to matter to God's people it's the law of love it pushes us back to love who is this God that gives these laws he is a God of love and he calls us to be a people of love. The New Testament just explodes that out. Love your enemy. Do good to those who persecute you. But it's not void in the Old Testament. If your enemy's ox is laying under a burden and he's stuck under a tree, go help him out. You see, it's not like Jesus was just inventing out of nowhere. He was drawing the same love and building it out. Now the last section here to look at a time to work, rest, and celebrate. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, But on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. It's an interesting thing to see how this cycles back around. The Lord builds this out now. And you see this sabbatical year set in place. Now, what's amazing is we're still in the desert. We're, we're, we're in the wilderness here. There's no, no one's working land. They don't have any land to work. All of these, these laws uh, point to a certain future. That's pretty encouraging if you're a people wandering in the desert. They talk about a time in which you will be in a promised land that will yield just incredible abundance. And this is how you are to live when you do that. Seven or For six years, labor, till, plant, harvest, but the seventh year is a sabbatical year. It's a year where you take a break and you don't do the work that you've done those previous six years. In a sense, this is like taking the seventh day rest and multiplying it by 365. <laughs> if, if you're struggling with the Sabbath day rest, you're going to go crazy in the sabbatical year, that seventh year. The amount of trust it required to believe that in the sixth year, your harvest would bring in enough to sustain you through an entire year of not cultivating and harvesting. That's incredible. A sabbatical year of, of, what do you do? You're a farmer, okay? You have an entire year. Think of the family dynamic for this. Think of the joy of worship, the journey with the Lord. All kinds of things would be available for your time in this seventh year where the land lies fallow. And the poor, they get to come and and not just glean from the edges of the field, they get the whole field now. Whatever comes up, volunteer. I pulled a carrot up over beside our house and apparently the guy who lived at our house, loved carrots, because they're popping up everywhere. Think of the poor. And then the animals, they come in too. They get a break. What does it say of God? It says they're also his creation. He cares about the animals. He, it matters that these animals have a rest. Even a year. The focal point here is that the poor be fed, but there's so many benefits to this. One thing it's just calling to our mind is that there is a balance, a rhythm that God has created us to operate and live within. For those of you who have a hard time just stopping your labor, this might meet you there. There's a time to to just rest. There's a time to just not be so busy, not see on the move, constantly doing this, constantly doing this. There's a rhythm. Work, rest, And now worship, worship three times a year. Verse 14, you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it, you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year. When you gather in from the field uh, the fruit of your labor, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. This is pretty incredible. Now, the ladies could come as well, and sometimes they would. Uh, so Many times if the family would journey together to Jerusalem to celebrate these things in years uh, ahead. Three feasts are given. Look at the, the, the rhythm of this, the routine. Every year. This was commanded. It means they're not working. They come and they sing and they praise. And the focal point of this was the Lord Yahweh. In our context, it would be the Lord, our Savior Jesus, to celebrate Passover. And then weeks later, seven weeks later, 49 days, or in the New Testament, Pentecost, right, 50 days from the the day after Passover finishes, is the Feast of Harvest that we celebrate. God's good work. And then the Feast of Ingathering, this is the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles, what, what is, what's the goal of that? It's to remember that we were once wanderers, sojourners. We, we wandered in the desert, we stayed in tents. And so they would build these little tabernacles all over Jerusalem, and they would sit in there together. It's kind of like camping. Now, let's close with these two last couple of verses here eighteen and nineteen. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened. Let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of your first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a goat in its mother's milk. And it I mean you're just reading along, and you're like, okay, check, okay, we can do that. And what what? What is that? I had a lot of fun this week. Every now and then I'd I'd find someone else, be like Uh, why should we not boil a young goat in its mother's milk? got some very interesting looks, right? No idea. Well, just as in our day, back in this time, there were both Egyptian and Canaanite circulated superstitions. Uh, One was that the life of the animal is in the blood, and and that's true, right? Because if you have an animal that bleeds out, it's dead. And so there began to be this superstitious kind of magic thing that they would, they would mix blood into bread and think that if they were eating somehow this, this life of the animal, that that would somehow bless them and make them stronger. And God says, no, none of that. Have nothing to do with that. No drinking of blood, no eating of it, mixing the bread. There is no power there. Some were saying, well, let's take some of the fat and, uh, and we'll, we'll put it around the manna, and we'll try to make, make this manna preserve it so that we can keep it. And that obviously has been commanded already. That's not cool. Don't do that. That's against the law. You're not to try to preserve this. And then this goat, this poor young goat, a mother's milk is given not to kill. The purpose of the milk is given to nurture. And so aside from it just being cruel, The superstition here was that if you take a young goat, boil it in its mother's milk, that you would make this soup, this goat broth, and then you could take it and and sprinkle it on your fields, and it would make your fields produce even more the next year. Not because there was any fertilizer happening, it was all superstition. If you kill a goat in a substance that's supposed to give it life and instead takes its life, then that God somehow will bless. God says, My people are to have nothing to do with silly superstitions. You begin to make a list, there are some crazy things around the world that people do for good luck and that people do to avoid bad luck. Categorically, luck doesn't exist. God does. Okay? There's no karma, there's no luck, it's nothing. So your rabbit's foot, trash it. You can knock on all the wood you want. It doesn't make a hill of beans a difference to the, go- to the Lord who is. You can kiss the Blarney stone if you're Irish. I got a little Irish in me. Have no desire to kiss a stone that's been kissed by millions of people. That's disgusting. little o- OCD on that. When you're playing Yahtzee with your family, you don't actually have to blow on the dice to get a Yahtzee believe it or not. the Silly things like this that that catch on. You watch these crab fishermen up there in Alaska. They have all these rituals that they have to do. They somehow think that if they do them, they're going to catch more crab. And God is up there looking down saying, are you kidding me? Who puts the crab in your tank? I do. I do. We do not manipulate the God who is. We worship Him. So, our response this morning, come back to our theme that we began with the love of God. It is the love of God that drives us to our knees at the foot of the cross to show us His provision of a Savior who can save us from our sins. It is the love of God that drives us from the gospel back to the law of love to shine and show His love to a lost and dying the world. It's His love that functions in His law. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that You have led us so lovingly through Your law to the realization that we are hopelessly sinful, that we cannot please You, that left to ourselves we will perish under Your wrath and in our sin. We thank You for opening our eyes to the the seriousness of our offense against You and then showing us the face of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. We thank You for the provision of grace and mercy, for the satisfying of justice that was given in Jesus taking upon Himself our sin and paying the price for Your wrath. We thank You that the grave is empty and that we, in Jesus Christ, can be forgiven, and set on the path of life to serve and obey you. Lord, there is no greater joy than this. We thank you for the law that teaches us who you are and calls us to be more like you. Make it true, O God, of us. More and more we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.